A thick cloud called a piper cub's tail, the match struck blue. We got my mother's father. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. I cried like a buyer Veterans Day Poppy. Hello and welcome to Track by Track presents Trailcast Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted. We are going track by track through Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band's uh, legendary 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Uh, Today we are discussing Orange Claw Hammer, which is track one on side four of Trout Mask Replica. So this is kicking off the last side of the album. Uh, This was recorded, uh, presumably, it certainly sounds like, on some sort of portable tape recorder, probably at the Woodland Hills, California house, where the band... uh, wrote and rehearsed the vast majority of Trout Mask Replica, uh, probably sometime in late 1968, early 1969. Personnel is Don Van Vliet solo. This is another acapella track. It's the longest of the acapella tracks at three minutes and 34 seconds. And thinking about this this being the first song on side four. Oh, and my guest today is uh, David Lipson. Hi. Uh, Hi, David. Uh, professor at San Diego State University, fellow uh, unusual music aficionado. And uh, David, pleasure to have you on the show again, uh, discussing another one of the acapella tracks. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So just thinking about my first thought when I saw that this is side first song on side four is my initial experience with this album was as a CD. So it just was all one big long blurt. And thinking of it broken up by sides is... A, I don't actually have this was originally a double vinyl album. So there were these kind of act breaks between between the sides. And it's interesting to see how each each side plays out in terms of what's included on it and um, how it how having that break between side one, side two, side three, side four affects how one might hear the album. Because, again, I I actually bought the CD at a Borders of all places, (laughs) not some cool hipster, you know, cd vinyl shop but no at a big box big box shop where people could get you know their chai tea lattes mere feet away it's always funny to me how some of these uh wild countercultural artifacts you can just go buy it's i've never been able to express this very well but just the fact that this is sitting on the shelf right next to like captain and tennille as something that you can just pick up and purchase is is astonishing to me in in some my some of my most legendary CD buys have been in obscure places like uh, in Arctic Finland. I got some five Euro CDs that I just love, <laughs> but but that's a different story. Yeah, uncovering uncovering gems is always is always a pleasure in in situations like that. But it is it's also it's so funny to I mean you know there aren't as many big box stores now. Borders has has gone the way of the dinosaur, but that you know you can just walk into like a Best Buy. Or which again, I don't know if there are any of those left either. And and purchase this this kind of wild music is is fascinating. But anyway, um, the track that we are discussing is Orange Claw Hammer. Um, this is if you want to talk about traditional um, interpretations of beauty of a song being beautiful. This is, I think, in that sense, in a in a more traditional sense maybe the most beautiful piece of music on this album. 
this is a really, really striking song in his vocal performance, in the melody, in the lyrics, in the little narrative that he creates. It's, um, it's a remarkable piece, all the more so being that like Dust Blows Forward and The Dust Blows Back, it seems to be a primarily improvised track uh, where he's clicking pause on the record as he comes up with the next line and then moves on to the next line. How, how long this took him is anybody's guess and if there's any edits to it, but it feels uh, extemporaneous and that's, that's all the more impressive. I agree. And the, uh, we'll get into it. I think, um, the, uh, the richness, um, all the details that to me are historical details, which are easy for me because now I have the internet, I can go through and research all these different references, but, um, it's a sort of a really sweeping scope in terms of, of all the history that are implied by all the individual references in this song. Um, and, they may have just come off the top of his head when he was thinking about antiquity. So it'll be interesting to see how, how all these things line up time-wise, but uh, I we'll see if we're over-interpreting uh, the, the things off the top of his head or if that all makes sense. <laughs> uh, we probably are over-interpreting, but that's that is now what podcasts are for. <laughs> that's why we're here. Yeah. Um, I know that. So John French stated that I think it was French. Um, stated that that Van Vliet would actually spend time um, around Lancaster, California, with some of the old hobos who were still riding the rails and would would um, set up camps and and pass through Lancaster. So, and and as that we brought that up on the Dust Blows Forward episode, and as I said then, pretty much any story that Don Van Vliet would tell about himself, you got to take a little bit of a grain of salt with that because it's not, he like to self-mythologize um but he could well be drawing on stories that he had heard from some of these guys uh in in crafting the song he also uh was a big fan of an album that uh from what i understand zappa had loaned to him which was called blow boys blow songs of the sea by ah. ewan mccall and a.l lloyd which is a collection of old like english and irish sea shanties and folk songs which is av available to listen to in its entirety on youtube so i'm gonna include a link for that um but he's definitely drawing from the traditions the the kind of imagery and the melodies um that you would hear on those those kind of tracks now now david again you you have a much much better ear than i do in terms of of melody and pitch is this song in a major or in a minor key? Uh, well, I, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but uh, to me, this works really well just over E minor and D major. And you can throw in a little G major. And the embarrassing part is you can pretty much play Gilligan's Isle. Uh, one of the YouTube, I, I, I have looked this song up on YouTube earlier because um, that was just the most convenient way for me to listen to it before the, the podcast. And someone commented that it, it has the feel of the Gilligan's Isle theme which um i really ruined uh rhyme of the ancient mariner for myself one time when i realized you could sing the entire thing to the gilligan's island tune the the meter is exactly the same as the gilligan's island music 
So if anybody out there wants to just completely destroy Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner for one of your English major or humanities major friends, just start singing it to the Gilligan's Island theme because it fits perfectly. I think what we're learning here is that the composer to Gilligan's Island actually did his homework. Uh, and um, although apparently it could be considered a collaboration with Bob Denver, who uh, who insisted on some changes that were made. <laughs> but that's another story. But uh, I have to say, you know, the song, the melody is so strong that you can hear an accompaniment. To me, I could easily imagine a bluegrass. Uh, you, so sea shanties translate well to bluegrass. And mm. uh, I think, um, so I heard those chords, the chord changes, I think, go along really quite well with his acapella. And it was easy to imagine an accompaniment. And sure enough, yeah, you can you can do Gilligan's Island. Yeah, there there is a recording of... Um... I think it's from a radio show done around the time of the Bongo Fury album where Zappa is accompanying Van Vliet as Van Vliet sings the song and Zappa's playing either acoustic or clean electric guitar. I can't, I can't really remember which and, and it works, but I feel like this song works best in this acapella format. It does evoke, you know, speaking of the ancient Mariner, you know, this, this old crusty, uh, sea dog who is just kind of uh, telling telling you his tale and having it in this uh, lo-fi recorded method with the clicks of the the pause button and the occasional bit of uh, like audio tape interference on the line where he says and a man wore a peg leg forever it's like he hits stop on record a little bit too quickly and so forever kind of zips up into this little um, squeak sound at the very end which which i think accentuate like i don't know if he could have done that if he tried or if you know how hard it would be to mimic that but it accentuates that line so perfectly that it's just one of those great happy accidents now i agree i think it again this song sounds like it's from an oral tradition of storytelling and and i, I like it. it's it's framed there's several frames and what you just said about don van vliet having conversations with hobos if if that was that's sort of an invisible frame that's around all of this is him receiving this information from a hobo because within the song it sounds like you're establishing a sense of place in some contemporary time ish <laughs> and you this the singer runs into this old man who tells a story of, of ages past and so um, i think having sort of the storytelling repeated over several generations within frame within a frame it works really well from, it sounds like ethnomusicology, right? We're hearing a rough recording of someone telling a story that he heard from someone of an old sailor with a peg leg. Exactly. Yeah. It's like an old Lomax uh, field recording of, of someone who knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who was a sailor back in the day and, and had this old tale that he passed along. A lot of these um, old sea shanties are, are wonderfully bawdy too, which doesn't pop up too much in this, this track, but there's, um, there, there's uh, on, on the Blow Boys Blow album, there's uh, a, tr a great track that um, the Mothers actually did a recording of, but I don't know if it was ever released until much, much later of a track called The Handsome Cabin Boy, which is <laughs> uh, a, a girl um, disguising herself as a young man and getting on a ship and then uh, mysteriously ending up pregnant. And so there's there's a lot of great, you know, old, old style body, um, earthy humor to those to those tracks um but yeah this this song uh the um langdon winners 
comment about it was the song works not for what it says to us, but for the way it joggles out an inherited store of fantasies about drifters, seaports, pirates, and the separation of fathers and children. And the the storyline that kind of picks up about halfway through the song of the narrator spying a young woman and or a girl and um taking it to be his daughter whether or not it actually is it's this is the most i think complete narrative of any of the songs on the album um i mean dust blows forward and the dust blows back has uh, you know is a little bit of a sketch of you know going out for a fishing holiday this is actually kind of a story with a beginning middle and end which is unusual on this record Absolutely. And trying to uh, piece it together again, it's, it's nice that you brought up the ambiguity of whether or not this is actually his daughter, because when you piece together the timing, it is, uh, it is somewhat dubious when he talks about 30 years later. Yeah. That's what it, Mike Barnes made that comment too, that, yeah. yeah, he sees this girl and he thinks it's his daughter, but yeah, if he's been at sea for 30 years, the likelihood that a young girl is his daughter is, is pretty, pretty out there. Um, and, and, uh, Right. So he's still at least still feeling the absence and, and projecting. So a lot of it might be projecting um, what he imagined his daughter was like. But but again, the, the historical references I'm really impressed by. I had to dig deep for this. So like one of my favorite lines is, I'll buy you a cherry phosphate. Yep. <laughs> so uh, popular in the 1870s. These are pre Coca-Cola days. Uh, so that was that would have been the drink of choice if this old sailor um had been growing up himself in the 1870s and thought that would be the appropriate thing to buy for a little buy girl. Buy for a kid, yeah. Yeah, you're not going <laughs> to get him a beer. And um, and I also had to look up, well, when were beaver high hats from the, we'll say high hat beaver mustache man, a wonderful phrase. Yeah, that's a truly great image. Right. So um, it makes more sense that the beaver applies to the high hat because indeed those hats were made out of beaver. Although maybe it was his mustache. <laughs> yeah, a beavery mustache. Yeah, I think it probably applies to the. It's it's Van Vliet has this way of just mingling a bunch of words together and to create this kind of uh, to create an image that you immediately can picture it, even though it doesn't necessarily make logical sense. We were talking a little yeah. bit about that on Well, where he'll use these very oxymoronic uh, phrase like um, solid motion or um, hard soft, you know, where he's deliberately juxtaposing opposites and yet creating something that's really striking. Um, but, but it is a striking image. And if I see the high hat beaver mustache man in a bar, I'm not going to let him buy me a drink. Yeah. Cause you're going to get Shanghai and yeah, wake up in a banana bin with beer and vomit. But, but I did also of course look up the beaver high hats. They were popular until the 1850s. So uh, this all sort of scans, either this guy had a very old hat or the story began in the 1850s. Um, I only recently realized that people were riding the rails, hobos, since after the Civil War, uh, since like the 1860s. Um, so apparently, you know, I, I had um, imagined, originally I associate hobos with uh, the Great Depression and Dust Bowl, but apparently uh, very early origin in American history. So. All that stuff is 1800s imagery. As is roughly late late 1800s, early 1900s, as is Painless Parker, the reference to a, above it, 
a wooden candy striped barber pole and above it read a sign painless Parker, which I guess was actually a real guy of which I didn't realize, um, until I was doing a little bit of, of research on this. And I'm, I'm quoting this directly from Wikipedia. So take it with the, the old Wikipedia grain of salt, uh, painless Parker, uh, 1872 to 1952 was a flamboyant American street dentist, uh, <laughs> which is, I didn't know that was even a thing you could be. Uh, I don't remember street dentist coming up as a, a career option. Uh, described as, and this is great, a menace to the dignity of the profession by the American Dental Association. <laughs> Four out of five dentists think this guy would not recommend pretty- Painless Parker. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, that's, that's, so that's placing it all in a consistent uh, late 19th century milieu. <laughs> and oh, another thing that goes along with that timing. So the connection between sailors and people in the West uh Mm -hmm. I sort of ran into this factoid on a road trip recently. We're going across Utah through Capitol Reef uh, National Monument, beautiful place. And there's this large, uh, there's a ridge of essentially impassable mountains that's called Capitol Reef. And apparently it was a tradition for uh, early prospectors to refer to um, impassable objects on land as reefs, as you would, because these were former sailors and turned prospectors. And uh, sure. So anyway, th- there was a tradition is in the 1870s in a, for prospectors to be out west wandering through mountains and probably hopping trains, <laughs> riding rails. So again, uh, he put this all together without Wikipedia. Maybe he did actually talk to some real hobos. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly entirely possible. And he's, you know, drawing on the stuff from the... Um the uh the folk songs that are compiled on the the blow boys blow and probably other albums um of of older folk tracks um and sea shanties and such uh it 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 is impressive how consistent the 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 imagery is um pulling from that period and it's it's another example of of him kind of picking up things that were in the air at the time and interpreting them in his own really unique way, like uh, a fascination with um, older forms of folk music and English and Irish folk music was, was in the air in pop in rock, rock and pop music. in in 1969, I had to look it up, but Fairport conventions. Um, uh, one, I think their first album with Sandy Denny on vocals came out in 69. Mm. And that's, you know, very clearly and consciously drawing from, old English and Irish folk music and um, as is groups like Pentangle, who I believe were recording around the same, same period of time. So, and I mean, this is obviously a very American uh, story, but it's drawing from the kinds of sounds of, of old English and Irish music, which, you know, goes also into American, so much American folk music and Appalachian music and so forth is derived from that. I didn't realize this until I was doing a little research yesterday, but the the Fairport Convention song "Maddie Groves," um, which is the lyrics are an old, um, I think English folk tune, but the melody that they're singing it to is actually from an Appalachian song. So it's this kind of squished together American English Irish folk played by a rock band. So just continuing on the the American tradition of of just 
you know, rolling things from from one one genre to the next and continuing the oral tradition of of the oral oral and oral tradition of of uh, extending the narrative to the next generation. Now, the only problematic uh, date that I've encountered so far in piecing together all these generations is um, unless there's a different reference. So the Piper Cub in the very first line, um, the thick cloud caught a Piper Cub's tail. Apparently it's a light aircraft that was produced from 1938 to 1947. So that might all be plausible if our intermediate, our, our first narrator, who is being told the story from this old man who's gray with age. <laughs> uh, I guess that all still fits within the possible timeline if this original story took place in the late 1800s. And- yeah, this dude would be pretty old by now, but he has been 30 years away, according to him. And he's wearing a peg leg forever, so his yeah. lifespan apparently is as impressive. <laughs> yeah, we could be, yeah, this could be definitely an ancient mariner kind of situation where uh, where we've got this guy of, of indeterminate age who's going around telling his telling his tale. Um, the I just want to highlight. Um, I mean, it's it's been I've said it ad nauseum at this point. The how incredible the lyrics are on this album, and the uh, the how how striking and evocative the imagery is. But this song in particular just has some some goosebump inducing images. Uh, I mean, starting with that, a thick cloud caught a Piper Cubs tail. The match struck blue on a railroad rail. That's, that's cinematic, like taking you from, (laughs) you know, this plane going overhead to someone just lighting up a, lighting up a cigarette on, you know, striking the match on the railroads. Um, I'm on the bum where the hobos run. The air breaks with filthy chatter. That's, we have discussed Harry Parch in the uh, Dust Blows Forward episode. The again, the hobo iconography, the the tales um, told by these people riding the rails and and passed around, was was used by Parch in his work. Um, and I mean, Parch actually was a guy who had had ridden the rails back in back in the day. Um, and as I mentioned on that episode, I find it odd that given the similarities and given that Van Fleet must have been aware of Parch's music. I mean, I know Zappa was and they traveled in similar circles. Um, and Parch was at that point in the late sixties, I believe had just had set up camp in, uh, Southern California. It it's, he must, Van Fleet must have heard this music, whether it was an influence on him or not, or whether it's simply a case of them coming to a similar place from different angles. But the the similarities to me of the kind of images they use, the the interest in, like you were saying in the Dust Blows Forward episode about creating a very and a uniquely American voice, uh, in kind of avant in avant garde music. Although whether Van Vliet would have con- self consciously considered himself to be avant garde, I don't know. Um, they they seem so aligned that it surprises me that there isn't more critical. Uh, discussion of of their works uh in comparison and contrast right i mean it's possible that it's parallel evolution but like you say the california connection and the hobo connections they must he must have been aware of harry parch and um 
Right, yeah, I guess Barstow is pretty early. That was uh, the Harry Parch piece was apparently 1941. But uh, Oh, wow, okay. But uh, much later, 1960s, uh, Parch was doing a lot more of the uh, instrumental music. Uh, but so getting back to um, this beautiful imagery you're talking about, something that puzzles me, and I'd love to have an expert like you explain this. Is, <laughs> Um, well, so the whole first half of the song is establishing this powerful sense of place before going mm. into this old, old tale, this old, old salty tale. And so the name of the song, you know, the, the orange claw hammer, the, the Oriole, this orange Oriole, which if you look at a picture, I could totally see an Oriole looking like an orange claw hammer. That makes sense. And, um, the beautiful Jack rabbit, the uh, sagebrush Jack rabbit. So you've got this song, you're, setting the place you were in the West somewhere, there's sagebrush, there's a jackrabbit. Yep. And um, it's clearly significant and important. Like you're saying cinematic, like we've set the stage, but the fact that that's the name of the song, Orange Claw Hammer, somehow it makes me feel like I need to think about it more. <laughs> yeah. It's emphasized I, it, it is emphasized. I, I, I don't know why that particular image of the song is is what he picked is what is picked out as the title except that it is just such a beautiful and striking image i'm realizing now as as we're talking you know how you start to hear as you're talking you realize how often you reuse the same words because to part the kimono a little bit david and i have have recorded all the episodes on the acapella tracks in the same afternoon and i'm realizing now i've used i use the word remarkable way too much so I, i'm apologizing to any listeners who are really sick of me referring to something as being striking or remarkable because those are those are my go-to words um partially i think to avoid using the word amazing which is painfully overused nowadays so we need a superlative uh yeah need i need to go superlative synonyms i need to bust out my thesaurus and just go through and kind of and overdub myself coming up with more inventive ways to refer to to refer to this this stuff um it's noteworthy the tactileness and the beauty of that a jack rabbit raised his folded ears a beautiful sagebrush jack rabbit and an oriole sang like an orange his breast full of worms and his tail clawed evening like a hammer his wings took there like a bomber and my rain can caught me a cup of water when i got into town our jobs ma'am ah your horse all fodder juxtaposition of so an oriole sang like an orange so it's it is orange, but it's, he's, he's implying that its song had some kind of like synesthetic connection to the orangeness and mm -hmm. which, you know, also brings up like the orange groves of California. Um, and then the, the very, you know, his breast full of worms, which is really bringing it down to, you know, he's not, it's not this, um, hyper romanticized, uh, image of of nature it's like no this is just you know this is a bird he eats worms and it's it's bringing it back to a very very real dirt under the fingernails um <laughs> would, it, would i ruin the moment if i'd mentioned that orioles really love nectar particularly oranges i'm not i don't know if they eat worms they might <laughs> that's fair like that's, oranges though for sure 
I've seen pictures of Orioles eating oranges. Oh, that's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. So an Oriole, yeah, it may, he, his presumption that it's breast is full arms, it may actually be full of oranges, which would, would, um, extend the metaphor even further. And his tail brings it down to earth. Brings it down to earth. Exactly. It's not, it's not, it's like the, uh, the mice toast scampering and the gophers rumbling and dust blows forward. It's like he's, his, uh, his view of nature is not, um, is not sanitized. He's, he's aware of the, the, uh, the lesser creatures and the, the, um, the red and tooth and claw aspects of, of nature, you know, the, yeah, it's a bird. It, it probably eats worms. Um, but then the, his tail clawed the evening like a hammer, his wings took to air like a bomber is just, I, I mean, it's, it's possible that the song is titled that simply because it is just the most breathtaking image in the song. Yeah, I, I like that. Just um, pulling out one, uh, one memorable image from a song, and it's just like how you choose to frame a piece of art. You know, coming up with titles for something rich and complex. Of course, how do you um, reduce this down? Like you could call it like, "Oh, this is a story an old man told me about blah blah blah." <laughs> like, right? I, yeah, it's it's a beautiful title. So. Um, I'll, I could leave it at that. It doesn't have to be perfectly descriptive. It's more evocative. And it does focus your attention on that, that image. And that is, does seem to be kind of around the point where the song shifts from being this initial setting, this place of, you know, uh, hanging out on the bum where the hobos run on, you know, hanging out on the, the rails to this point of the, the narrator, telling you about uh you know being away for having been shanghai being away for 30 years and running into this young woman that he takes to be his daughter uh what what was throwing me as i was researching this yesterday is what a roundhouse man is ah i I, uh, apparently that was a bit of ship uh, architecture and it sounds like it was quarters um they tended to be more officer quarters although uh so uh, it is a nautical term, apparently, okay. and, and it sounds like maybe he was on that ship long enough to have some standing <laughs> because it tended to be, at least in most usages I could find, um, the, the sort of nicer places on the ship, like more of the officer's quarters and less of you know, the, where the rest okay. of the crew would hang out. But, um, so in his 30 years on on this ship, he had worked his way up from, you know, wherever he was. To, from the banana bin. To from the, the banana bin. To, yeah, now he's a roundhouse man. <laughs> yeah, it, and it's, um, talk about fantastic imagery. Um, the, the um, wooden tits on the goddess. Yep. Pull out full <laughs> sail. Attempted away your peg leg father. That is, that is just... Um, that's a timeless uh, image. That's, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Brought, yeah. Brought down, brought down to like really you know, earthy plain language, but still mythical, right? Like it, you could yep. almost see, um, you know, the uh, Ulysses. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was just going to reference, I was just going to reference the Odyssey and, and yeah, it, it does the, the ancient tales of being, of being lost at sea and, and the connection with the sea are are so you can smell the seawater on this track. 
and he sings it with such like his his vocal performance seems to increase in ferocity as the song goes along like the the initial um the initial lines are have a little bit of the uh well he's already got a pretty strong melody with the thick cloud caught a piper cub's tail but the intensity with which he's singing it starts to seemingly kind of overload the little microphone that he's using on the the tape recorder and some of the like when he sings i was shanghaied he gives so much uh voice to that you know the the obvious terror and frustration of the the sailor who had been shanghaied he's he's really just belting it out and you know pinning the needle on the recording equipment that he's using that's so true and i stumbled onto that just by having this track on um like i had the re- I had it on loop so that like I would go to the end of the song and then suddenly there's this very jarring start to the beginning of the song where uh, there was a very different quality. So it's true that he's built up, he's really warmed up and by the, what he's emoting at the end, the salt water, yep. it's like, it's, <laughs> you know, it's perfect for talk like a pirate day, but uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's all the water. Like he really does. Like, I challenge anyone to, <laughs> to deliver that line with as much saltiness. Yeah. He, he really is just, uh, evoking this, uh, you know, the old sea dog, um, brought to tears, you know, with this, taking that, taking this young girl to a, a, you know, soda shop and buying her a cherry phosphate little come little one with your little dimpled fingers. That's another great image. Little right, dimpled and- fingers. Right. And so I'm presuming that this little one is not a 30 year old woman. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, more than likely not. Yeah. I think that the, the interpretation that this is just some young girl that he spotted and he's having this moment of, of, um, remembering his children and the, the soft lass with brown skin who, who I have to say takes him from a vomit and beer and a banana bin. Like that's yeah, a nice. Yeah, things turned out for him. Yeah, that was that was a step up towards the roundhouse. I guess. Yeah, that that is a nice lady. If if she spots you in vomit and beer in a banana bin, she's like, I'm gonna help this guy out. Like that that's a real mensch thing to do. And uh, stuck around for long enough for seven babies. So that's seven yeah, babies was wasn't all bad. With snapping black eyes and beautiful ebony skin, another. Uh, this song is just so rich with with image and and um, image and metaphor. And so I was trying to, uh, so I had not heard of the uh, influential album you'd mentioned that Zappa gave him, uh, The Songs of the Sea. Yep. Blow, uh, blow so, boys, blow. Songs of the <laughs> Sea. So, of course, I, I started poking around trying to find, um, because, you know, the term sea shanty pops into my head. And I, I looked this up and I realized that most of these are work songs. And not, okay. not and this is more of a ballad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was looking for pirate ballads. And of course, what do I come up with? But Sons of Rogues Gallery. What an amazing couple albums. <laughs> Have you heard these? There's a no. cover of this song. So I-, I was looking for influences of this song. And I find uh, this is volume two of Rogues Gallery with filled with musicians, including Nick Cave and Tom Waits and Keith Richards. And uh, a guy named Ed Pastorini covers this song, acapella, on Sons of Rogues Gallery. Oh, that's wild. Um, I had no idea. And uh, I've never so, heard of Ed Pastorini. So, yeah, he's uh, apparently best known for being in 101 Crustaceans. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to lie. Never heard of him, but, you know, I, I'll I have to check it out. To call, see if he will 
join this podcast um, as a guest. I, I think you may have your man. A thick cloud caught a Piper Cubs tail. A match struck blue on a railroad rail. The old puff horse was just pulling through. And a man wore a peg leg forever. I'll put out the call. I'll, and, I'll see uh, if anybody knows him. But what this said to me was that as I'm looking for authentic influences that gave rise to this very unique song, I, I just basically found the original uh, that <laughs> instead someone had covered. It, I think shows that it's just, this is on an album full of old um, Pirate Jenny. It was a beautiful song I discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I even found an extremely academic um, analysis of Pirate Jenny, which I think Nick Cave is featured on with a female vocalist. Anyway, it's, I'm going to have to look into this set of albums more um, in more detail. But I guess it just shows the authenticity or the illusion of authenticity that the song evokes, <laughs> uh, that it's in there with a bunch of traditional yeah, that it can pass. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think the when one begins combining like Southern California and sea shanties, the ultimate conclusion that you you end up being drawn to is Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. Well, and I'm afraid to say that this Rogues Galley uh, um, was apparently inspired. I, I think Johnny Depp may have actually been the executive producer. Okay. All right. So yeah, it's the yo ho ho pirates life for me is is is. But uh, but the songs are the uh, the artists that have gathered for it are, are impressive and and so it's it's worth a listen, <laughs> and um, I think the delivery by Ed Pastorini obviously lacks the rawness, but um, but at least shows shows the respect <laughs> for the song. Yeah, and this is a, another track like with. Um, Dust Blows Forward, where the rudimentary recording method he's using really does give it a feel of a much older artifact than it actually is. That It does feel a bit like an old 78 or an old wax cylinder recording. And, you know, where, where he fluffs the line about licorice twisted around under a fly. Um, Not an easy line to say. And yeah, he just keeps going. And um what that is actually referring that's a lot of the the imagery in this is it's you know striking and vivid it's not as um as surreal as a lot of the images on in his songs like he's he's clearly he's referring to very physical things um just you know with these this kind of vivid um descriptive like you know the railroad looked like a y up the hill of ladders is a great image but it's describing something very you know, physical and tangible. The one line that throws me is that licorice twisted around under a fly. I really don't know what he's referring to. <laughs> under a fly. Unless a fly was sitting around on a piece of licorice. On a piece of, yeah. <laughs> Although it does sort of make me think of uh, the old fly paper that we used to have up when I was a kid. But um, it's, well, just, it's mean- just a wonderfully specific image. Just... Um, the, the richness of detail and all this makes it all such a complete universe that he's describing. Well, and flies and pests are certainly a part of, you know, hobo, hobo existence. Um, when we were talking about dust blows forward and there's a line about diamonds and lice, I was looking up old um, hobo slang uh, 
the other day just to see if you know there was anything on these songs that I had never caught before. And there's so many different words that they use to refer to lice. Like it must have been <laughs> such a common issue that they've got like it's like the old you know um, line about you know certain cultures having like a hundred words for snow or whatever. It's like the number of different words for uh, slang terms for lice was like oh man they must have just had. This was so common. <laughs> they had this many different terms for lice. It's it's not a very romantic. And uh, the, the imagery I, I generally get from the, the hobo songs is not a romantic one, even though it sounds free and <laughs> drifting. Yeah. Yeah. With freedom comes, you know, uh, limited access to baths and other basic forms of food and hygiene that we've, and we've become we've accustomed to. Stuck on to. refrigerator cars. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, now I'm getting off track, but uh, I ran into some piece of information that claimed the Pixie song, Here Comes Your Man, mm -hmm. uh, was about hobos dying in trains because of earthquakes. <laughs> now, interesting. That, that's one that, you know, just it, uh, whether or not that is in any way justifiable interpretation of that song, I don't know, but it is something that could certainly happen. If you're riding the rails on and uh, through California, <laughs> and you have an earthquake, that uh, that is interesting. I'm going to have to look that up. It, I having heard that song many times, and actually having sung that song on a couple of different occasions, uh, I've always taken the lyrics to be more or less gibberish. Um, well, there's a boxcar. There's a boxcar waiting outside the family stew. Which I mean, a family stew, I suppose, could be you know the hobos getting together and. Um, you know, mingling all their food into uh, something that they can all share. But anyway, we could maybe we'll uh, one of these days we'll do a um, track by track Pixies and uh, we can discuss. Here comes your man. <laughs> Another time. Yes. Uh, so I believe that is going to uh, wrap it up for Orange Clawhammer. Unless um, David, if you had anything else you want to to mention on this track. No, I think we've covered we've covered it all. It's um. Thank you very much. It's a beautiful, evocative piece that uh, is really worth diving into and, and trying to figure out from uh, aesthetic, aesthetically and historically where it fits into music, where it fits into history. I know I found it a great, a great wormhole to jump into. Yeah, this song contains multitudes and is. Um, I, I think I mentioned on the Dust Blows Forward episode that if I were to try and introduce Trout Mask Replica to someone who does not like, um, you know, uh, confrontational music and get them to listen to it and not just immediately run from it screaming, I'd probably go for one of the acapella tracks because they're a bit more melodic. And this is, this song is one of the highlights of the album and would be a pretty good way, I think, to introduce someone to Don Van Vliet and uh, Captain Beefheart and this music. Uh, so that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Um, for David, uh, he is uh, he has music available under the name Evil Dr. Lipschitz. Uh, I will be including the link for that on Bandcamp. Uh, check it out. There's some really great stuff there. Um, for me, I am on Twitter at Joel A. Bakker. That's B-A-K-K-E-R. I don't tweet very much um, and because Twitter is horrible. Uh, and I'm also on Instagram, same name. I use Instagram a lot more frequently because who doesn't like to see pictures of cats? And that's mostly what I post is pictures of my cat. Uh, so thank you very much for listening. And uh, please do not be tempted uh, away by the uh, 
goddess on the pole, uh, the wooden tits on the goddess with the pole out full sail. Yeah, please, please don't be Shanghai'd and join us next time. Thank you. Seamen's eyes, a roundhouse man's eyes, flow of water, salt water.